Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. We have finished our deep dive into the text of the Declaration of Independence and are now exploring the 56 men who signed the document. This is part three of the signers, and like parts one and two, we will hear from the signers themselves. Our narratives are in the first person, and each signer will speak to us, not in 1776, but after they have ascended to paradise. Naturally, the personalities, spiritual as they may be, really come out. Truth be told, most people can only name a few of the brave men who signed the Declaration, and maybe a couple of highlights of their lives. Even fewer have any idea about the many sacrifices the signers made to win independence and forge a new, free republic. There is a sentiment held by some that the founders were in it for the money, sent others to fight for them, and grew rich because of the war. This is almost entirely wrong. Many of the signers of the Declaration risked their lives directly. Some narrowly escaped death in battle. Others had their fortunes ruined. But they all maintained their sacred honor. We are rectifying this lack of historical knowledge. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. In the last two episodes, we covered the first 25 signers as they appeared in the engrossed version of the Declaration of Independence, which was signed by the Continental Congress on August 2, 1776. If you missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up. And a cautionary note for all these episodes involving these mini-biographies of the signers. The sources often disagree in details, sometimes even on the basic facts. Where there seems to be a prevailing view... Where there is a disagreement, but I possess a seriously grounded educational opinion, the spirits relate the prevailing view or my educated opinion. If there is an important unsolved mystery, the particular spirit may comment that you will have to wait until you meet him at the pearly gates. Now let's continue. I'm most pleased and humbled to introduce John Morton. Thank you so much, my dear Judge Warren. Now, before we begin with my story, I want to thank Miss Sheila Guerin for her generous subscription to this very podcast, and others who do the same in the future will definitely be thanked in kind. Now, I am John Morton. I'm unusual among the signers in that my family came from the fair country of Sweden, among the first of such immigrants. Some say I also had Finnish ancestors, too— and, well, you can ask me about that when we meet in Nirvana. I never knew my father, he passed away before I was born, and I was brought upon this earth around 1724, and the exact date you again will have to gather from my mother when you meet her in Xanadu. I was raised on a farm at Ridley Township, Chester County, and you consider that Delaware. My stepfather was an English gentleman, ensured that I received an exemplary education at home by his own hand. I was trained as a surveyor, but my primary occupation was as a farmer. In 1764, I became a justice of the peace and a delegate in the General Assembly of Pennsylvania. Soon, I served as Speaker of the House of Representatives— and beginning in 1766, I served as the county sheriff for three years and later as the presiding judge of the quarter sessions and common pleas and then eventually was promoted to the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. On the national stage, I attended the Stamp Act Congress in New York in 1765. 
I became a Pennsylvania delegate of the First Continental Congress in 1774. And Dr. Benjamin Rush, who you have learned by now enjoyed commenting on almost everyone he met, remarked that I was a plain farmer. But even he had to admit that I was well acquainted with the principles of government and of public business. I played a key role in the proceedings of the Second Continental Congress. As Mr. Benjamin Franklin may have earlier related to you, when the Second Continental Congress was debating Richard Henry Lee's Resolution for Independency, Pennsylvania was in a unique pickle. Because, you see, our delegation was severely divided. In a preliminary informal vote on July 1st, our delegation broke 5-2 to two against independence. There was much lobbying amongst the delegation that occurred overnight, and there was no question that famous Benjamin Franklin and brilliant James Wilson would vote yay. Charles Humphreys and Thomas Willing were adamantly opposed. Robert Morris and John Dickinson originally were opposed, but on July 2nd, they decided to abstain, and then it fell to me. I was considered a moderate, and my vote was less than certain. Franklin takes credit for securing my vote, but I was a man of firmness and decision and possessed a true spirit of patriotism. I was not about to fail my country, and I cast my vote in favor of the resolution. Naturally, I voted for the declaration itself and signed it on August 2nd with most of the other signers. Further, I served on many congressional committees and chaired the committee of the whole that debated the Articles of Confederation. Although I courageously voted for independence, my decision was not particularly popular in my home region. I knew that many criticized my decision, but I did what I thought was right. Less than a year after signing the declaration, I fell deathly ill. I dictated a message for my friends and neighbors who still disagreed with my approval of independence. I announced, Tell them that they will live to see the hour when they shall acknowledge it to have been the most glorious service I ever rendered to my country. And that message is engraved on my gravesite obelisk. On about the future tax day, April 15th, in 1777, I ascended to Elysium. I was just 51 years old, and I was the first signer of the declaration to be called home to eternal bliss. Oh, what more I might have done with my life had it not ended so prematurely. After my death, my family was threatened by attacking British soldiers and had to fly from our home. For posterity, my lovely wife and I had nine children. I did not live long enough to be much tested on my pledge of my life, property, and sacred honor, although my property came under British attack, and I preserved my honor by doing what was right and defending it on my very deathbed. And now I am most pleased to introduce Mr. George Clymer. I am most obliged, Mr. Morton. Yes, I am George Clymer. I came to this wonderful world on March 16, 1739. I was born in Philadelphia. My father was born in Bristol, England, and was a ship captain. I was most unfortunately orphaned as a wee lad at just seven years old, and raised by my dear uncle and aunt. By good fortune, 
My uncle was a wealthy and refined merchant and a dear friend of Mr. Benjamin Franklin. My precious uncle treated me like a son, gave me an excellent education, and I learned the ways of commercial business at his hand. I loved reading, science, and literature, and was a keen and savvy businessman. Joseph Hopkinson's eloquent eulogy of me at the Academy of Fine Arts reflected that I was full of courage, patriotism, wisdom, modesty, studiousness, contemplation, and inquisitiveness, and that I frequently promoted every scheme of improvement for the use of the country in science, agriculture, education, and other useful and fine arts. I went into the mercantile business with my father-in-law and brother-in-law in in the mid-1760s, and about that time my poor dear uncle died, leaving me a sizable estate. Then the world changed. The British passed the Stamp Act in 1765, and I was quickly to rise in defense of colonial rights. I attended and was a zealous participant in the public meetings in Philadelphia leading the charge against British oppression. In 1773, I chaired the Committee of Vigilance in Philadelphia, which duty was to persuade merchants of English tea to give up the right to sell that very product. When ships full of English tea laden with tea tax arrived, I led the committee's efforts to ensure that no merchant would sell it, and we succeeded. Not a single tax tea bag was ever sold. That same year, I served as the captain of volunteer troop, some called the Silk Stockings. Yes, the Silk Stockings. This was quite comedic because there is no question that most of our troop was composed of gentlemen from wealthy families. No, it was not a combat kind of thing, but we did persuade many a merchant to abandon the black trade in English tax tea. I also served on the first council of safety organized in Philadelphia. As fighting broke out, I plunged my talents into raising military supplies, corn, flour, gunpowder, and tents. I exchanged all of my hard specie, that is gold and silver, into continental paper currency, which of course would be absolutely worth nothing if the revolution failed. I became the treasurer of the Continental Congress in 1775 and most of 1776. I was elected to serve as a Pennsylvania delegate in the Second Continental Congress after the vote on Richard Henry Lee's resolution for independence. I was not alone. Pennsylvania purged the delegates who refused to vote for independence, and I was one of the five replacements. I arrived around July 20th and signed the declaration on August 2nd. I also served on a number of congressional committees and labored on a wide range of issues, such as addressing food shortages in Philadelphia and how to handle prisoners of war, especially the 900 Hessians that George Washington captured after crossing the Delaware. I also visited the troops of the field at least twice, once at Fort Ticonderoga in 1776 and once at Valley Forge in 1779. In 1776, when the Congress retreated to Baltimore to avoid British movements towards Philadelphia, I stayed behind with Robert Morris and George Walton to remain as a committee of vigilance in Philadelphia. In 1777, when the British were conquering Philadelphia, they made a 25-mile detour and ransacked my home. My poor wife and children had to hide in the nearby woods. Later, they even started tearing down a home in Philadelphia they thought was mine. They tore it down literally brick by brick, but when they realized it was not my home, but that of a relative of mine with the same name, they promptly stopped. In 1778, I served as a peace envoy to Native Americans and was able to broker a peace around Pittsburgh. 
I just avoid being slaughtered by some enemy Native Americans when, by divine providence, I accidentally took a route, which avoided an ambush. Instead, another unfortunate man was slain on the same spot. My report about Fort Pitt led Congress to target Detroit as a military target. In 1782, I helped Robert Morris establish the first government-chartered bank, and I was one of its investors and served on its board of directors. In any event, after I completed my term in Congress, the call of public service called again in 1784 when I began as a member of the Pennsylvania legislature. I worked on what you might term criminal justice reform. I led the revisions of the criminal code and introduced a new penitentiary system. I even opposed capital punishment, an extreme position in those days. The enacted reforms were universally recognized as more humane and just to criminal defendants. After we had won independence, I served at the Constitutional Convention and signed the Constitution. There were just six of us that signed both the Declaration and the Constitution. Roger Sherman, George Reed, Benjamin Franklin, Robert Morris, James Wilson, and me. I was elected to the first Congress under the Constitution. I retired after just one term, and George Washington appointed me Supervisor of Revenue for Pennsylvania. I had the unfortunate duty of presiding over collecting revenues while the Whiskey Rebellion was brewing. I even visited the heart of the troubled area at great risk. After all, I was the man who was supposed to enforce the very tax law that the men were challenging in a very disagreeable in our manner. However, I refused to back down and perform my duties with manly firmness. In 1796, I was appointed as part of another delegation to broker a peace with the Cherokee and Creek Nations, which was successfully accomplished. After this, I retired from public service. Still, I continued to assist with financial support of important civic institutions. I bailed out the University of Pennsylvania when it was close to bankruptcy. I helped start banks, was a founder of the Academy of Arts and Sciences of Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Agricultural Society, and the Philadelphia Bank. The next world welcomed me on January 23rd, or was it January 24th, 1813? Well, ask me in paradise. I suspect you have never heard of me. Such a shame. Over and over again, I lived up to my pledge for my fortune for America. My personal safety was threatened more than once when British troops moved on Philadelphia and when I went to negotiate with Native American nations. And I stood my ground. I preserved my sacred honor, and I hope my life has helped become a blessing for you and yours. And I now have the esteemed privilege of acquainting you with Mr. James Smith. Many thanks, my dear Mr. Clymer. I'm a D. James Smith. When was I born? (laughs) Well, there's a wee bit of mystery to that. Most estimate that I was hatched upon the Emerald Isle. That is Ireland, you see, sometime between 1715 and 1720. If you are truly curious, ask me when we meet in Tyrnail. <laughs> Why the bewilderment? Don't you know that Tyrnail is the other land we attend after death? My father was a farmer who came to America when I was but a child and settled on the western side of Susquehanna, Pennsylvania. I was educated by Dr. Reverend Francis Allison, the provost of the College of Philadelphia, at his academy in New London, Pennsylvania. I became quite accomplished in surveying and expanded my professional capacities by studying law under the care of Thomas Cookson. Or was it my elder brother? <laughs> Another question for Tyr Nail. I was completely filled with joy, possessed a remarkable memory, and enjoyed jesting. 
I had a sharp wit and loved telling humorous stories, something like our later Mr. Lincoln. He is quite the character up here, I'll tell you. <laughs> Part of my fun was to absolutely never reveal my age. So truly, I was teasing about asking my birthday to Tyrnail. I won't tell you here either. I had a serious side as well. I was a professor of religion. Or at least some think. Others think not. In any event, all agree that I took religion very seriously and would not countenance any disrespect to our holy trinity. I tried my hand at iron manufacturing, but after I became consumed with politics and due to the mismanagement of those I delegated to steer the business, I lost 5,000 pounds sterling, a weighty sum back then. My first appearance on the political stage was a colonial-wide meeting of delegates regarding boycotting English goods and considering the idea of convening a Continental Congress. I was a delegate from York County to the Pennsylvania Convention and served on the committee to draft instructions to the General Assembly. The prevailing mood of my fellow delegates was to find a peaceful solution to British oppression. But I was much more inclined to defend our liberties with force of arms. I knew that reconciliation would never happen. It was time to cut the bands that connected us to the British Empire. After our meeting, I raised the first volunteer corps in Pennsylvania, organized to push back British oppression. I was joined by co-signer James Wilson in organizing the volunteers. Initially, it was large enough for me to become its captain, and then it grew and I became the colonel of the regiment. Because I was too old to actually direct the troops, I was more of an honorary colonel. But I was credited for having raised approximately 20,000 troops in our so-called Associators Corps. In January 1775, Pennsylvania convened a convention again to consider how to resist British oppressions. Following the Continental Congress's call on May 15, 1776, that all colonies should establish their own forms of government independent of Great Britain, I served in the conference to establish such new government of Pennsylvania, among other things, on June 25, 1776, the conference passed a resolution authorizing Pennsylvania to support a Declaration of Independence. Dr. Benjamin Rush made the motion and I seconded it. And we, along with Thomas McKean, were appointed to draft the actual resolution. Much of it expresses sentiments very similar to those articulated in the final Declaration of Independence. Oh, I was not yet a delegate when Congress passed. Richard Henry Lee's resolution for independence on July 2nd and approved the Declaration of Independence on July 4th. Instead, as of July 15th, I was still serving in a Pennsylvania convention to draft a new constitution for our state. Five days later, I was elected to the Second Continental Congress to replace members who voted against the Declaration. I, therefore, had the great privilege to sign the Declaration of Independence on August 2nd on behalf of Pennsylvania. While in Congress, I served on a vital committee that directed our military operations. My fellow committee members were James Wilson, Samuel Chu, George Clymer, and Richard Stockton. I remained in Congress 
through November 1778 and then tried to return to my personal pursuits. Still, from 1779 to 1782, I held various public offices, including state legislator, judge of the Pennsylvania High Court of Errors and Appeals, brigadier general in the militia, and counselor for the state in a land dispute between Pennsylvania and Connecticut over the Wyoming Valley. In 1800, I retired from the practice of law. Although my lovely wife, who I married around 1760, and I produced three sons and two daughters, four, or was it three of them, made it to paradise before me. I joined those children in Tiernail on July 11, 1806. My law office, located in my hometown of York, Pennsylvania, at one time was used as headquarters for the Board of War of Congress, and it suffered a fire the year before I ascended to paradise. All of my papers were burned. <laughs> There'd be no way to find out about my birthday. <laughs> I was jovial, but I took deadly serious my pledge of my life, fortune, and sacred honor on behalf of the Declaration of Independence. You should, too. I have the delightful pleasure to introduce to you Mr. George Taylor, another Irishman, but not quite so jovial as me. <laughs> Why, thank you so much, Mr. Smith. I am George Taylor. And like Mr. Smith, I, Mr. Taylor, was also born in Ireland in 1716. My father was a man of the cloth. Although I took up the study of medicine, that was not my strong suit. Instead, I left the land of saints and scholars for Philadelphia. I arrived there with no money. You see, I was an indentured servant. To pay for my passage across the ocean blue, I had to pay off my debt by working for the man who paid for my passage, a Mr. Savage. And Mr. Savage, well, he owned ironworks at Durham, Pennsylvania. I began by shoveling coal in the furnace blast and worked my way up to being a clerk at his Warwick Ironworks. I eventually was promoted to bookkeeper manager at the nearby Coventry Forge, also owned by Mr. Savage. Even after I paid off my indentured debt, my future did not look particularly bright. But then, the spirit of truth intervened, and Mr. Savage dropped dead. Now, I'm not saying that I wanted him dead. Quite to the contrary, it was a terrible loss. But the next year, in 1742, well, I married his widow, and took over his business, and built up a considerable fortune. After several years, I moved to Lehigh and built a new ironworks, and I became a captain in the Chesterfield County Militia in 1747. I served as a Justice of the Peace in 1761 for Bucks County, and then in 1764 for Northampton County. I became so respected that I was elected to the Pennsylvania Assembly in 1764 and served for several years, becoming a vital member. I drafted instructions for our delegates to the Stamp Act Congress that met in New York in 1765. But my service in the colonial legislature ended in 1770 when I declined re-election. However, like Michael Corleone 
events soon pulled me back in, and I became a member of the Northampton County Committee of Correspondence in 1774, and then I was re-elected to the legislature in 1775, just in time for the destiny of America to become firmly solidified. I served on several legislative assemblies, attended the Provincial Revolutionary Convention, served on the Council of Safety, and helped draft my colony's instructions to our delegates in Congress, eventually empowering them to vote for independence. I was chosen to take the place of one of those very delegates who did not favour independence during the legendary vote on Richard Henry Lee's resolution for independence. I took my seat in the Second Continental Congress just in time to sign the engrossed copy of the Declaration of Independence on August 2nd. Dr. Benjamin Rush remarked that I was a respectable country gentleman, not active in Congress, which was a very fair assessment. And who can blame me? I only had the opportunity to serve in Congress less than one year. But my contributions to the Young Republic had not yet ended. In 1777, with fellow delegate George Walton, I helped negotiate a peace treaty with the Iroquois Nation. In addition, I was elected to the Supreme Executive Assembly of Pennsylvania in 1777. But I only served six weeks because I fell seriously ill. And don't forget, I also put my life at risk when I was a colonel in the colonial militia. But I also got down in the nitty-gritty. My ironworks, remember, they manufactured grape-shot, bar-shot, cannonballs, and even cannons for our valiant revolutionary troops. Well, and was par for the course, I was poorly compensated, and my business suffered. Not only was Congress stingy with my payments— but Pennsylvania also stabbed me in the back. You see, my ironwork was actually a lease from John Galloway. Now, you probably never heard of him, and no wonder, because he was a no-good loyalist who was a member of the First Continental Congress and betrayed us patriots by emigrating to Great Britain and becoming a leader of the loyalist movement and advisor to our enemy. So, naturally, of course, Pennsylvania confiscated his property, but by doing so, they put me out of business. I was only able to recover by moving to New Jersey and leasing a forge there. Now, my beautiful wife Anne, who, remember, was the widow of Mr. Savage, well, she bore us a son and a daughter, but heaven called for my son and my wife before me. And I was a bit more adventurous than I might otherwise have let on. Because, you see, after Anne departed this cruel world, I carried on a torrid love affair with my housekeeper. <laughs> and she gave me a progeny of five children, all out of wedlock. <laughs> well, the city of God called for me on February 23rd, 1781. Now I can understand if you don't necessarily think of me as an exemplar of good morals, but I lived the American dream, indentured servant to signer of the Declaration, and I used my fortune to help the American Revolution, and I put my life on the line as a colonel 
in the militia. When it came to America, I had preserved my sacred honor. And now I am delighted to introduce to you the great James Wilson. Thank you, Mr. Taylor. I am most gratified to meet you. I am James Wilson. Like the last two spirits before me, I also was born in Great Britain. I, however, was born in Carskadu, Scotland, approximately in 1742 or 1743, near St. Andrews. One source even specifies that I was born on the fourth day of Patriot Week, that is, September 14, 1742. When was I born? I have no idea, not being self-aware, but feel free to ask me, beloved mother, when you reach the Celestial City. I received an exemplary education from Glasgow, St. Andrews, and Edinburgh, focusing on rhetoric and logic. In part, this explains my mastery of oration and argument, which often was simply irresistible. Fellow signer Dr. Rush observed that his mind, well he spoke, was one blaze of light. Not a word ever fell from his lips out of time or out of place, nor could a word be taken from or added to his speeches without injuring them. <laughs> Who am I to challenge the amazing Dr. Roche? Indeed, I understood the impression that gripped the old world and emigrated to Philadelphia in 1766. I soon became a tutor at Philadelphia College and quickly was reputed to be a most excellent scholar of the classics. Within a few short months, I learned law under the eminent and most dedicated patriot, Mr. John Dickinson, a renowned lawyer who was quite a famous opponent of British oppression in the colonies. Dickinson would play a key role in the lead-up to the American Revolution. But, unlike us signers, in the end, he didn't have the fortitude to support independence. After two years, I began my practice and became highly regarded for my legal acumen and was a land law specialist. I lectured on English literature for several years at the College of Philadelphia. Having much verve, perhaps too much verve, I also purchased land, that is, I speculated on its value, buying what I expected to be a low price so I could sell it when the property grew in value. In 1774, I stepped into public service as a member of the Provincial Convention of Philadelphia, as well as being chair for the Carlisle Committee of Correspondence. That same year, I helped organize volunteer troops with future co-signer James Smith and was elected colonel of a regiment. I applied my expert legal and writing skills on behalf of our unalienable rights. In particular, I wrote an influential work opposed to British oppression entitled Considerations on the Nature and Extent of the Legislative Authority of the British Parliament. I vehemently opposed Parliament's authority to legislate over the colonies 
and vociferously argued that the imperial model of rule must be changed. I proposed something similar to the much later adopted Commonwealth of Nations. I was significantly ahead of public sentiment and elite opinion. Often, I was the first to express revolutionary opinions. Likewise, when Parliament enacted the Boston Port Bill, closing down the Port of Boston in reaction to the Boston Tea Party, I wrote that it was unconstitutional because colonists had no say in Parliament. This was quite revolutionary, since most just assumed that Parliament could do almost anything. I was nominated to serve in the First Continental Congress, but Joseph Galloway, the future loyalist who fled to England, of whom Mr. George Taylor just mentioned, well, Mr. Galloway was the Speaker of the House who despised my vigorous advocacy for colonial rights and maneuvered my defeat. Still, fate would not be satiated. The next year, I was unanimously elected to the Second Continental Congress and took my seat on May 10, 1775. I was always a strong yay for Richard Henry Lee's resolution for independence and was absolutely delighted to sign the declaration on August 2nd. For political reasons unimportant here, I was not re-elected after 1777. Actually, the reasons are important. After we declared independence, I was not some wild-eyed radical looking to overturn every aspect of society. I believed in a prudent approach to our internal governmental affairs, and that made me exceedingly unpopular to some. Even after I was bounced from Congress, I continued to recruit soldiers for the Continental Army. I was also sent to negotiate with Native American nations, and I succeeded in that mission. I retreated to Annapolis, Maryland, for a seasoned and broadened my business interests and continued to expand my land speculation. In 1779, I and about three dozen of my friends and colleagues were targeted by a mob. We were accused of having something to do with rampant inflation and food shortages. That, of course, was ridiculous. But the mob, including militiamen, stormed my residence. We had to barricade ourselves in my house. The confrontation turned violent, and several people were wounded and even killed. It was over quickly. Cooler heads prevailed, and pardons were cast far and wide. Afterward, my home was ever after known as Fort Wilson. Whether in admiration or sarcasm, was never understood by me. Still, the French held me in high esteem. Accordingly, in 1779, I was appointed as the Advocate General for the French government in the United States. I fulfilled this function until 1783, working as the lawyer for the French government in various lawsuits. I also assisted Robert Morris to form the Bank of North America and was appointed as one of the bank's board members. 
I was returned to Congress in 1782-1783, missed a term, and was re-elected in 1785-1787. to I was held in very high regard, was appointed to several essential committees, and no one had a better reputation of working hard with more integrity than myself. I served in the Constitutional Convention which met in the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia. Historian Mr. Charles Augustus Goodrich remarked of my participation, He rendered the most important services. He possessed great political sagacity and foresight, and being a frequent speaker, he did much to settle upon just principles, the great and important points which naturally arose in the formation of a new government. Truth be told, I was part of the committee that reported the overall draft of the Constitution on August 6. This, of course, was after much debate. By most accounts, I was the second most loquacious speaker at the convention, and second only to James Madison in overall influence. Among many other positions, I argued that the foundation of the government rested on the people, and that the Constitution must have checks and balances to protect against tyranny. When the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention met, I was the only member of the Constitutional Convention who was there, and it fell to me to defend the document. In my concluding remarks to the ratifying convention, I explained, among other things, that it was not perfect, but considering the wide range of views and that it provided within itself the power to amend any mistakes, that it is the best form of government which has ever been offered to the world, and I firmly stand by that conviction today. Apparently, I was persuasive as Pennsylvania became the second state to ratify the Constitution. Once the federal Constitution was adopted, Pennsylvania convened a new session to adopt its own new Constitution, and I was the primary draftsman of that blessed document. Since 1776, I held in disdain the excessively Democratic Pennsylvanian Constitution, which did not recognize sufficiently separation of powers, bicameralism, checks and balances, and unalienable rights. The new Constitution I drafted brought us back to those key features of a Constitution essential to incorporating the first principles of a free and just government. After the federal constitution came into effect, President Washington appointed me as an associate justice of the United States Supreme Court. I also was the first law professor at the College of Philadelphia. Before I passed to the Great Eternal, I spent my time and money focusing on land speculation in western New York, Pennsylvania, and Georgia including with European funds, which all went awry. I became insolvent, and my creditors hunted me 
like a wild beast. I literally had to flee Philadelphia for New Jersey to avoid arrest for debtor's prison. Eventually, my debts snared me, and I was imprisoned in debtor's prison both in North Carolina and New Jersey. The pressure was too much. While traveling on the circuit for the Supreme Court, I had a bit of a nervous breakdown, and my fellow Supreme Court Justice, the dear James Iridell, took me in at his home in North Carolina, and on August 28, 1798, I died, while still on the Supreme Court. In my family life, my first beloved wife bore us six children, and my second wife won. Of course, I was proud to pledge my life, fortune, and sacred honor to America. Thankfully, I did not have to risk my life or property for our dear new nation. But of course, I did not know that when I signed our death warrant. And yes, I tarnished my own reputation with my bankruptcy. But that had nothing to do with fidelity to the nation. In fact, I was betting it would prosper more than anyone could have imagined. I was premature, not wrong, but premature in my estimate, and I did pay a steep price. I now have the spectacular privilege of introducing you to Mr. George Ross. Many thanks, Justice Wilson. I am George Ross. I was born on May 10, 1730 in Newcastle, Delaware. My father had immigrated from Scotland, and I was a minister of the Episcopal Church, and he worked to make sure I had an excellent education in Latin, Greek, and other vital subjects. I was a lawyer by trade, having been trained in the law in Philadelphia by my older brother John. I became the Crown Prosecutor, that is what you might consider today to be the District Attorney for Land Cancer. Pennsylvania. I was known for my eloquence, wit, and friendliness. In 1768, I entered public service upon my election to the Pennsylvania Assembly. I was elected several consecutive terms. I was no revolutionary, and had a general inclination to work with the Crown. I was the prosecutor after all, but nevertheless I was elected to the First Continental Congress. Recall Pennsylvania was, for generations, dominated by Quakers and their pacifistic notions, and so there was a substantial constituency supporting reconciliation with the crown. Nevertheless, I opposed the wicked policies of the Parliament, and was authorized by the Pennsylvania Assembly to draft the instructions that governed the Pennsylvania delegates at the First Continental Congress. In 1775, with the Empire continuing to crack down on our unalienable rights, the shot heard around the world— in the changing sentiments of the people, I resolved to support revolution. I also drafted resolutions to mount a defensive posture for Philadelphia and the state, and then served on Pennsylvania's Council of Safety to effectuate these measures. Truth be told, I didn't just instruct people from afar. I went into the field as a colonel in the Pennsylvania militia. However, I was not immediately returned to the Second Continental Congress, so I missed the debate and vote on independence and the Declaration. 
that Pennsylvania soon enough realized its mistake and replaced one of the delegates who refused to vote for independence. Hence, I was there to proudly sign the declaration on August 2nd. That same year, I helped negotiate a peace treaty with Native American nations in northwestern Pennsylvania, and I served as the vice president of the Pennsylvania State Constitutional Convention, drafted rules for the convention, and helped draft our Declaration of Rights. Because of illness, I did not return to Congress in 1777. I served in both the Pennsylvania Assembly and Congress without pay. When Lancaster County tried to pay me 150 pounds sterling, I gently declined the award, noting that every man should, within his power, act on behalf of his country without expecting a monetary reward. I worked to remedy some of the ills plaguing our Native American brothers. I was heartbroken to see the injustices that had been inflicted to them. I later became an admiralty judge. Very quickly, I made a ruling in a dispute between Connecticut and Pennsylvania, and a Congressional Court of Appeals tried to overrule me. Imagine that! This was before the adoption of the federal constitution, and this lackey Congressional Court was trying to impose its will on my Pennsylvania decision. This dispute ended up lasting for 30 years, but I was long gone before the final decision was made. I must admit, I am not particularly well known. Even in my day, I was overshadowed by many fellow patriots in Congress and elsewhere, which is a bit irksome. However, I am delighted to share the spotlight with my niece. I am John Ross's uncle, the John Ross who married Betsy Ross who had the great honor of sowing our national standard. I, George Washington, and co-signer Robert Morris visited my dear Betsy and convinced her to sow the first old glory. She is said to have added her own flourish by demonstrating the ease of cutting and the beauty of five-pointed stars to be placed in the Blue Union. Some say it's a myth. Ask me in the abode of God. On Bastille Day, that is July 14th, 1779, I gave up my ghost. As I lay, dying, suffering the effects of a terrible gout attack, I remarked that I was about to take a long journey to a cool place where there would be most excellent wines. The wines are truly fabulous. What I didn't know was that the awesome background music of the Beatles would bless us so. Mike Gerard, are you well? I've never seen an otherwise virile man's countenance turn so foul so quickly. In any event, my wife and I had two sons and a daughter. I risked my life in the militia, lessened my fortune by serving without pay, and I maintained my sacred honor throughout my life on behalf of our wondrous nation. With great honor, I am pleased to introduce to you Mr. Caesar Rodney. With sincere gratitude, sir, I am Caesar Rodney. I was born October 7th, 1728, near Dover, Delaware, on my father's 800-acre plantation, Byfield. I come from a long lineage of courageous nobility, including Sir Walter de Rodney, Sir George de Rodney, Sir Henry de Rodney, and Sir Richard de Rodney who joined Richard the Lionhearted in his holy crusade where he was martyred during the Siege of Acre. 
During the English Civil War, like so many other noble and rich families, our family suffered great losses, and we were forced to disperse, find new occupations, and even flee Great Britain. My father, William Rodney, left the seat of the Empire and settled in Pennsylvania, and then he moved to Kent on the Delaware River. He was called home by the Supreme Judge of the World in 1708, and as his eldest son, my father left me a considerable estate. But despite my wealth, I was known for a good sense of humour, energy, and generosity. John Adams once wrote a very peculiar compliment when he wrote that I was the oddest-looking man in the world, tall, thin, and slender as a reed, pale, his face not bigger than an apple, yet there is a sense of fire, spirit, wit, and humour in his countenance. My first public service was as a high county sheriff, then as a justice of the peace, and later a judge of the superior court for the three lower counties. I also held posts of register of wills, recorder of deeds, clerk of the orphans' court, and a co-trustee of the loan office. By 1762, and for many years thereafter, I represented our fair county in the colonial legislature. With Mr. McKean, I compiled the colony's laws. I attended the Stamp Act Congress in 1765, along with Mr. McKean and Mr. Colock. I joined with two co-signers, Mr. McKean and George Reed, to draft a denouncement of the Townsend Acts. In 1769, I was elected Speaker of the House of Representatives, which I held for several years. In light of the Intolerable Acts in 1774, I assumed the authority of the Governor and called for a special meeting of the Colonial Legislature at Newcastle. The very first such meeting in Delaware in direct defiance of royal authority. I was elected to the First Continental Congress in 1774 and ably served on several important committees. I helped draft a Declaration of Rights in 1774, and the next year I was elected to serve at the Second Continental Congress, and I, who was once a militia captain, was promoted to Colonel and then to Brigadier General of the Delaware Forces. When the debate on Richard Henry Lee's resolution came to be debated in Congress, I was absent. You see, there was some concern expressed in the southern part of Delaware about whether we should declare independence, and I was engaged in military action to ferret out loyalists as well as to conjole the reluctant to come along. Well, little did I know that my presence was desperately needed in Philadelphia— I received an urgent dispatch from Mr. McKean alerting me to the fact that he and Mr. Reed, who together were two of our three-man delegation to Congress, were divided over the issue of independence. I must come to Philadelphia now to break the tie, he said. Well, when I received the message on July 1st, I left immediately and rode a horse all night through a terrible thunderstorm, and I only stopped to change horses. I traveled eighty miles in one night and usually a such journey would take at least two or three days. I appeared just as Congress was voting. Covered in mud, soaking wet and exhausted, I cast my vote. Delaware approved independence, securing the unanimous vote that was in so much doubt mere moments before. And naturally, I voted for the Declaration of Independence and signed it on August 2nd. Unfortunately, 
Loyalist forces worked to block my re-election to Congress, but I continued my public service through the work on the Council of Safety and the Committee of Inspection, both indispensable to ensuring a necessary state of military readiness. In the fall of 1776, I continued to organize military operations, I recruited troops, and even participated in a minor military action in Delaware and New Jersey, including putting down an insurrection in Delaware. In September 1777, I was promoted to Major General. When the British Army moved towards Philadelphia, I directed my troops to march to oppose them. However, General Howe determined to take a different route which led to the Battle of Brandywine, which I did not participate in. Just a few months later, I was made an Admiralty Judge, and then, in December, I was re-elected to the Congress. But I had to decline before I could take my seat, because I was made President of Delaware. I coordinated my noble state's efforts closely with General George Washington to assist in our ultimate military victory. After four years in 1782, I retired from the presidency, that in part because I had exhausted myself, and in part because my health was very precarious. You see, for years I had asthma and skin cancer. The cancer started on my nose and crept across my face. Surgery had helped slow its spread, but it continued its incremental growth. For years, I had to wear a green silk scarf on my face to cover the gruesome sight. After 1782, Delaware elected me again to Congress, but I could carry on there no longer. In 1783, I was elected Speaker of the State Senate, but the Grim Reaper was right behind me. Zion's irresistible siren's call reached me on June 29, 1784. Dedicated unceasingly to my work, I never married and had no children. I left most of my estate to my nephew, Caesar Augustus Rodney, who would later serve as Attorney General of the United States. I am now revered in Delaware— in fact, there was a specialty quarter for our state that shows me on horseback riding to cast my vote. I lived fully up to my pledge. My military service risked my life. I unceasingly committed my time, focusing on liberating America, not growing my fortune, and I vigilantly maintained my sacred honor in the various positions I held for years. And now, I am very pleased to introduce the most admirable George Reed. Many thanks, Mr. Rodney. I am most humbled. I am George Reed, and was born on September 18, 1733, or was it sometime in 1734? Like many of my colleagues, you will have to ask my mum to find out. In any event, I was born in Cecil County, Maryland, and was the eldest of six brothers. My grandfather was a wealthy subject in Dublin, Ireland, and my father emigrated to the colonies around 1726. I attended an exemplary school in Chester, Pennsylvania, and later learned at the feet of Reverend Dr. Allison, who also taught several members of the Continental Congress and other high office. 
I studied the law in Philadelphia and was admitted to the bar in 1753 at the tender age of 19. At this time, I relinquished my portion of my future inheritance of my father's considerable fortune. I surmised that I had already obtained all that I needed from his good graces and would consider it a fraud to seek more from his future estate. In 1754, I moved to Newcastle, Delaware, and began to practice law. Although the competition was stiff, when I was 29 years old, I became crown attorney for Delaware. Think of it as the attorney general representing the crown's interest in the colony, and I maintained that high office until 1774, when I became a delegate to the First Continental Congress. Beginning in 1765, I was elected to the General Assembly of Delaware for 11 consecutive years. The same year I first became a member of the Assembly, the British imposed upon us the dreadful Stamp Act. I helped draft a remonstrance to the king condemning it. I also supported non-importation agreements and other measures of colonial resistance. This was all while I was the crown attorney, quite an unusual position. When the British oppressed the people of Boston with the Boston Port Bill in 1774, I worked with others to send supplies to the beleaguered city. I was an ardent supporter of colonial rights when British oppression started to sweep across the continent. I was elected to the First Continental Congress in 1774 with Mr. Caesar Rodney and Thomas McKean. I was re-elected to the Second Continental Congress and became an earnest ally of Mr. John Dickinson, who was a vigorous opponent of British tyranny, but like Dickinson, I also was unconvinced that we should yet declare independence. I still held on to what would later prove to be a phantom hope that we could regain our unalienable rights without having to declare independence. As Mr. Rodney has related to you when we were called upon to vote on Richard Henry Lee's resolution on July 2nd, I was opposed. Only Mr. Rodney's very late appearance stopped Delaware from having a one-to-one tie. Everyone else who voted against independence refused to sign the declaration. They were unwilling to affix their John Hancock on the treasonous and revolutionary document. But me? I acceded to the will of the Congress, and on August 2nd, without hesitation, I signed it. Pennsylvania delegate Joseph Galloway remarked to me when I was signing it that I did so with a rope around my neck. I replied, I know the risk and am prepared for all consequences. But that is not all I did. I began to raise exceedingly needed funds for military supplies. I joined the militia. During this most eventful year of 1776, I also was elected president of our Delaware's State Constitutional Convention and served as the chair of the drawing committee, which gave us a new 
state constitution. In 1777, I served as the Speaker of the Legislative Council, which in effect made me Vice President of Delaware. That same year, our President, John McKinley, was taken captive by the British. When I was traveling with my family, we were on a small craft in the Delaware River when it became stuck right in the sight of the British Navy. We were soon surrounded by British forces, but I was nothing but convincing. I merely explained that we were simply heading home. (laughs) The British were so convinced by my performance that they helped dislodge our boat and sent us on our way. With such British assistance, I was able to capably command Delaware's resistance to British oppression, and I was very active in our Committee of Safety. As a member of the militia, I marched at least twice with my musket to oppose the potential invasion of our fair state. However, for a time, I had to step back from public affairs. Poor health led to my resignation from Delaware's Legislative Council, and I refused to stand again for Congress. In 1782, I was returned to the Legislative Council and, ironically, considering my trouble navigating in the Delaware River, I became a judge of the Court of Appeals in Admiralty cases. I was also appointed a special judge to address a border dispute between Massachusetts and New Jersey. I attended the Annapolis Convention in 1786, which fruit was eventually the Federal Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. Fittingly, Delaware chose me as a delegate to the Federal Constitutional Convention, and I became just one of six men who signed both the Declaration and the Constitution. And just between us, I signed the Constitution twice, once for me and once for John Dickinson, who had to leave the proceedings early. My strong support of the ratification of the Constitution was in no small measure responsible for Delaware having ratified it first. While Mr. Rodney adorns our coin, Delaware's status as the first ratifying state has led to our nickname, which proudly adorns our current license plate, the first state. I took office in the U.S. Senate in 1789 and continued in that august body through 1793 when I became Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court. Although I had performed my duty with excellence in all my offices, as the Chief Justice, I was readily acknowledged to have done my finest work. My temperament and judicial opinions were second to none and I remain an influential jurist in Delaware to this day. I became a resident of the City of God while still in office on September 21, 1798. My wife, the widowed sister of fellow signer George Ross, and I had four sons and a daughter. I was proud to risk my life in the Delaware River and in the militia and maintained my sacred honor by signing and then defending the declaration I originally opposed. With much humility, it is my pleasure to introduce Thomas McKean. Thank you, Mr. Reed. Good day. I am Thomas McKean, and I am most obliged to meet you. 
My father immigrated from Ireland and found his bride in America. Another immigrant from Ireland, and I was born on March 19, 1734, in New London, Chester County, Pennsylvania. My father was a farmer and a tavern keeper. Like some of my co-signers, I was educated by Dr. Allison at New London. And I studied law in Delaware and began practicing law when I was but 21 years old in the Delaware courts and later in Philadelphia. I was known to be mostly serious, but could use humor as an effective legal and political weapon. I could be prickly. At times I was, well, quick to anger, cold, tactless, and vain. I enjoyed wearing my hat at a most rakish angle, and I had a beautiful gold cap cane. But in the end, any of my personal foibles were clearly immaterial to those whom I served. I began my service in public affairs when I was elected as the clerk of the Colonial House in 1756. In 1762, I became a member of the Colonial Legislature in my own right. I also served as High Sheriff of Kent County, Delaware, was a militia captain, trustee of the Loan Office of Newcastle County, Delaware, customs collector and judge at Newcastle County, deputy attorney general of Sussex County, Delaware, chief notary officer for the entire colony of Delaware, and helped compile Delaware's laws with the eminent Caesar Rodney. When the Unconstitutional Stamp Act passed, I was elected to represent Delaware in the illustrious Stamp Act Congress in 1765. I played a leading role in that wonderful stroke for freedom. Truly, much against my own desires, the last day of our Stamp Act Congress was one of controversy in which I played an indispensable role. As it happened, Timothy Ruggles had been elected president of the Congress and on the last day of the proceedings, when most of us were eager to sign our names to that exceedingly important petition to protect our unalienable rights, Ruggles, the very president of the Stamp Act Congress, refused to sign it. I was taken aback as was the rest of the Congress. Nothing before them portended any such act of cowardice. I asked Ruggles, why do you refuse to sign it? And he refused to even give an answer. I pressed again and again, and finally Ruggles stated, it was against his conscience. I could broker it no more. I leaped out of my chair, and I yelled, conscience, conscience. Ruggles responded by challenging me to a duel. And I, of course, immediately accepted. The next morning, instead of fulfilling his duty, he scampered out of town like the true coward he was. His legislature reprimanded him. He revealed his true colors when it became evident that he was a leading loyalist in Massachusetts and later fled to Nova Scotia in the bosom of British Canada. I opposed each successive grievance of the king in Parliament and supported the convening of the First Continental Congress. No surprise, I was elected to the First Continental Congress and its successors through February 1783. I was the only person who continuously served from its very origins through the signing of the Treaty of Paris that brought to a close the American Revolution. I strongly supported and voted in favor of Richard Henry Lee's Resolution for Independence, as well as the Declaration of Independence. As you heard from Caesar Rodney and George Reed, our three-person delegation was split. I was in favor of independence and Reed against it. I knew Caesar Rodney was in favor and would vote for it. 
like he was missing from the Congress. I paid out of my own pocket for an express dispatch to hunt him down and alert him to come to Philadelphia at once. He arrived just in the nick of time. When he voted, he hadn't even taken off the spurs from his boots, and he was sopping wet. But all was well. His unflinching vote in favor of independency ensured that Delaware would be on the ledger of liberty for all time. The day after we approved the Declaration of Independence, we determined to rally militia to assist George Washington. I was a colonel, and soon marched my battalion to New Jersey. At one point, while leading my troops at Washington's command, I was personally surrounded by cannon fire. A horse next to me was killed, and I thought my life was surely to be sacrificed. But divine providence had a different fate for me. I narrowly escaped the angel of death. Our duties having been fulfilled, I was able to return to Congress, and I signed the engrossed Declaration of Independence on August 2nd. For some reason... The official record of the Congress omitted my name. In fact, some say I did not sign it on August 2nd, but that I signed it afterwards, on January 18, 1777. Or some even say October 1777. Or even 1781. Why? The confusion. I blame bad record-keeping. But you can ask me in the ethereal dimension. In any event... In later 1776, I was called back to the Delaware Convention that was creating a new constitution, and I was the primary draftsman of the constitution in Delaware, which I pretty much drafted alone overnight. Between the Pennsylvania and Delaware legislatures, they trusted me with nearly every important office at the same time. In 1777, I was President of Delaware, Chief Justice of Pennsylvania, Speaker of the House of Delaware, and a member of Congress. While I was serving my country in many ways in 1777, it was an exceedingly dangerous year for my family. I had to move them five times to avoid the marauding British army. You see, the British were targeting me. I wrote to John Adams that I was being hunted like a fox, by the enemy. I had to move a sixth time to avoid hostile Native Americans. While serving in Congress, I served on the committee that drafted the Articles of Confederation. Meanwhile, I served as President of Delaware in 1781, as well as Chief Justice of Pennsylvania. This dual service to two separate states has never happened before or since. I tried to resign from Congress in 1780, but the idea was not accepted. And in fact, the next year, I was made its president. Finally, the bird was too much, and I resigned, so that I could have sufficient time to attend to my duties as Chief Justice of Pennsylvania, a position I maintained for 22 years. Of course, while serving as Chief Justice in a new, independent state, many of the issues that came before us were novel and required thoughtful attention. I was said to issue accurate, profound, and easily understandable opinions, which have marked me as one of the finest judges in American history. Recent scholars have come to understand that I had a very powerful effect on the course of developing an independent judiciary, including the use of judicial review in striking down unconstitutional laws. Parallel, if not superior to, Chief Justice John Marshall. My biographer, John Coleman, explained it this way.
only the histographical difficulty of reviewing court records and the otherwise scattered documents prevents recognition that McKean, rather than John Marshall, did more than anyone else to establish an independent judiciary in the United States. As Chief Justice under the Pennsylvania Constitution, he considered flawed, he assumed it the right of the court to strike down legislative acts it deemed unconstitutional. Proceeding by 10 years, the U.S. Supreme Court's establishment of the doctrine of judicial review. This is more than a satisfactory way to be remembered. I did not serve in the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. Instead, I fulfilled my duty in the ratifying convention of Pennsylvania. I strongly supported the ratification of the wondrous document. My final remarks to that august body were quite influential. Quote, the law, sir, has been my study from my infancy and my only profession. I have gone through the circle of office in the legislative, executive, and judicial departments of government. And from all my study, observation, and experience, I must declare that from a full examination and due consideration of this system, it appears to me the best the world has yet seen. Unquote. In 1789, Pennsylvania convened a constitutional convention to amend its state constitution. And when the debate began, I was the presiding officer. Over the many years of service, I could not but help create political enemies. A culmination of their efforts occurred in 1807 to 1808 when a committee of the Pennsylvania Assembly drew up articles of impeachment against me, alleging ridiculous charges of misconduct. Now, it is true that I appointed my political allies to positions of power and punished my political enemies, but who doesn't? Let's get real. The full legislature received the report and tabled it, which means it was never acted upon. The full legislature also printed my reply to the charges in the official record. At the end of 1808, I retired and enjoyed a leisurely life until I was called home by the angels on June 24th of 1817. My first wife predeceased me way back in 1773, but my second beloved spouse survived me as did four of my 11 children from both marriages. I left them stocks, bonds, and large swaths of land in Pennsylvania. Suffice it to say, I risked my life in battle. Death was all around me. My family and I were hunted by the British, and still I maintain my sacred honor to defend the Declaration of Independence and our new nation. I submit for your acquaintance, Mr. William Floyd. With great gratitude, Mr. McKean. I am William Floyd. I was born December 17th, 1734, at Brookhaven, on Long Island, New York. My grandfather emigrated from Wales in 1680 and settled in New York. My family was wealthy and owned a large plantation on the shore of the island facing the Atlantic Ocean, and, oh, what a tremendous view that afforded. Unfortunately, fate took both of my parents when I was just twenty, and, as the eldest son among nine children, I became responsible for managing the estate and guiding my siblings, as well as my betrothed and our own children. I was well educated and gained my instruction from homeschooling, but gained even more knowledge and wisdom through the experience of running the estate at such a young age. I was known as a kind, robust, healthy, and attentive businessman and strongly decisive. 
I was said to have a natural dignity. My mind was clear and my health vigorous until the end. I was intensely dedicated to my church and became a town trustee in 1769. Now, initially, like much of New York, I did not warm up to the idea of vigorous resistance to dubious English policies and actions. Fulfilling my duty, I was a member of the military beginning in 1760, and by 1774 my hesitation about resistance gave way to the practical realities facing our people, that the British had gone too far and it was time to act. I then became a member of the First Continental Congress and signed the Articles of Association, the import-export ban intended to force England to change its ways, and I was very active in the First Continental Congress. Well, after I returned home from Congress, the British invaded the region in which I lived, and I commanded a successful militia repulsion of the British at Gardiner's Bay. More specifically, disembarking troops were trying to gain a beachhead, and with me at the head of our militia division, we forced them to retreat. Well, I was promoted to Major General then, and became a local celebrity, and I was elected to the Second Continental Congress. I was very quiet on the floor of Congress, but I worked exceedingly hard on several committees and was well respected for it. Now, as you know, at the time of the vote on Richard Henry Lee's resolution for independence on July 2nd, 1776, all of us New Yorkers had to abstain. We had yet to receive instructions authorizing us to vote for independence. But that changed on July 9th, and so on August 2nd, I was fully empowered to sign my name to the declaration, which I did with pleasure. Early in the War for Independence, while I was in Philadelphia serving in Congress, my family was forced to flee when the British occupied Long Island. My home was occupied by the British Army. Well, rather, the British stabled their cavalry horses in my home, and my livestock, fencing trees and crops, were stolen, consumed, and destroyed. Of course, all the revenue that I otherwise would have made from the estate vanished as well. Well, I suffered under this disability for seven years, almost the entire length of the war. Of course, this was a severe financial hardship, but after the war I was able to renovate my home and property, and in fact I increased my holdings in outstate New York. During the Revolution, I served in the New York State Senate and worked vigorously to move the new machinery of government. I worked with one or two others to help New York face down potential debilitating inflation. In April 1779, I left Congress and returned to New York, where my fellow senators required me to work on a committee that maintained New York and congressional relations. I returned to Congress in 1780 and continued to serve until 1783. I then served in the New York Senate through 1786. I also served in the first House of Representatives under the Federal Constitution, but I declined to run a second time. 
I first served as a presidential elector in the election of 1800, and I did so several other times with the last such service in the election of 1820. I was also a member of the New York Constitutional Convention that convened in 1801. I gave one of my sons the Ocean View Estate, and at the age of 69, I moved into the unsettled wilderness of New York. I built a new home there and soon created an amazingly productive farm. And finally, I departed these earthly bonds on August 4th, 1821, at the tender age of 86. My first wife died during the American Revolution when she was ensconced in Connecticut while our home was being occupied by the British. I married again and had a total of five children. My progeny included two people of notable interest, David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and Abraham Lincoln. I did not simply pledge my fortune. My home was occupied, my wealth ruined during the war. I risked my life by taking up arms against the British, and I lived up to my promise to maintain my sacred honor. On occasion, I hear some ungrateful or ignorant people say that the signers of the Declaration were all in it for the money. Bah! Humbug. Especially living in New York, it would have been much easier to side with the British and save my home and not risk my life. But that was no way to maintain my sacred honor. And now I am pleased to herald Mr. Philip Livingston. I am much obliged, Mr. Floyd. I am Philip Livingston, and I came on this earth on January fifteenth, 1716, my great-grandfather was a man of the cloth, quite celebrated in Scotland, and he moved to Holland in 1663. My grandfather immigrated to America and settled in New York. He obtained a large grant of land on the Hudson River. I graduated from Yale College in 1737. At the time, such an education was exceedingly rare in New York. After I graduated, I moved to New York City, and in a short time became a successful merchant. I became quite wealthy, including as being a trader privateer during the French and Indian War. My main business was importing the Finnish goods my fellow colonials so desperately desired. I entered public service in 1754 as an alderman for the city of New York, and served in this capacity for nearly a decade. Meanwhile, in 1757, I was also elected to the General Assembly of the Colony and held office for a decade. I served with my brother, Robert. I played an active role in the Assembly, including helping providing troops and supplies for the war against Canada, internally improving the colony, and facilitating better communications and trade with the other colonies and foreign nations. I served as Speaker of the House. As troubles were brewing with the Empire, I sat on the Assembly's committee, which communicated with our colonial agent in England, a one Mr. Edmund Burke. Early on, 
I was a heated and excited voice for protecting our liberties against English oppression. As far back as 1764, I wrote an answer to a speech given by the Imperial Lieutenant Governor Colden defending taxation without representation. I responded, quote, Such must be the deplorable state of that wretched people, who being taxed by a power subordinate to none, and in a great degree unacquainted with their circumstances, can call nothing their own. Depressed with this prospect of inevitable ruin, we hope your honor would join with us in an endeavor to secure that great badge of English liberty of being taxed only with our consent, which we conceive all His Majesty's subjects at home and abroad are equally entitled to. Unquote. As you know, New York in general was not as quick to join those fighting for our liberties as those in Massachusetts and Virginia, but I was. As such, I attended the Stamp Act in 1765. Still, I was not favorable to violent tactics often employed by the Sons of Liberty. Nevertheless, I eventually served on the Committee of 51, which appointed the delegates to the First Continental Congress, the Committee of 60, which enforced the import-export bans effectuated by the Congress, and the Committee of 100, which temporarily governed New York in the chaos of the build-up to the Revolution. As British oppression became intolerable, I railed against it. I was elected to the First Continental Congress and participated vigorously in the debates in favor of our liberty and helped draft an address to the people of England, pleading for them to join our cause. Still, I thought independence was not warranted. At this time, I thought it was a most vain, empty, shallow, and ridiculous project. I took some pleasure in driving Mr. John Adams into exasperation. I had two cousins who served with me in the Second Continental Congress. William Livingston of New York had to leave in June 1776 to command the New Jersey Militia. Robert R. Livingston was appointed to the Committee of Five, who drafted the Declaration of Independence. But in an ironic movement of history, he was not present when it was reported or approved by Congress, and he never signed it. Yes, Robert was peculiar that way. At the Second Continental Congress, like the rest of our delegation, I was not empowered to vote for independence on July 2nd. I didn't even bother to attend the debates on July 1st or the 2nd. But I did vote for independence on July 9th, when our New York delegation was finally authorized to do so. And I proudly signed the declaration on August 2nd. As the circumstances changed, so did my position. Best to unify the people of America around independence than to be chopped to pieces by the British oppressors. When our troops were defeated at the Battle of Long Island, that is on August 27th of 1776, George Washington and his officers met at my home in Brooklyn Heights. There they decided to evaluate the situation. I had another home on Duke Street, and when the British took control of the city, that house became a barracks for imperial soldiers. Meanwhile, my Brooklyn Heights home was used by British troops as a hospital. 
That home was eventually burned. The British also confiscated my business inventory and other parts of the business. My family and I fled to Kingston, New York, which became the new temporary capital of the new state of New York. I was elected as a New York State Senator in 1777, and I continued to serve in the Continental Congress as well. In Congress, I served on committees addressing Marine, Commerce, Finance, Military, and Native Americans. Unfortunately, my health started to suffer tremendously. I left Congress and joined my family in Kingston, but then returned to Congress on May 5, 1778. While in service to that invaluable body, I was called home by my Creator on June 12. Upon learning of my death, Congress ordered that all members of Congress wear a mourning crepe around their arm for a month. During my short time on earth, in addition to my revolutionary activities, I was a founder of the New York Society Library, the Chamber of Commerce, and King's College, you know it as Columbia, and I served on the first board of directors of the New York Hospital. I left behind my lovely bride and five sons and four daughters. My nephew, Chancellor Livingston, administered the presidential oath to George Washington in 1789. With great humility, I am proud to present Mr. Francis Lewis. The humility is all mine, Mr. Livingston. I am Francis Lewis, and my tragic life began on March 21st, 1713. I was born in Landiff, Wales. My father was an Episcopal clergyman, my mother the daughter of similar clergymen. Life turned cruel quickly. I was orphaned when I was no more than five years old. My dearest aunt raised me. I was educated in Scotland and England, including at Westminster, and became an apprentice clerk in London. I spoke Welsh, Gaelic, and English. When I was twenty-one, I gained my small inheritance. This was my chance to depart that dreaded old world and start anew. I used the inheritance to purchase goods to sell in America and left England for the colonies. My entrepreneurial spirit paid off. Soon I was a very successful merchant. But this was not without adventure. I traveled to Russia, the Orkney and Shetland Islands, and was shipwrecked not once but twice off the coast of Emerald Isle. I settled in New York. During the French and Indian War, I was an aide to Colonel Mercer at Fort Oswego and a supply agent for his troops. The fort fell to the French in 1757. In the engagement, Colonel Mercer was killed when I was standing right next to him, and I was captured and imprisoned in France. Now, it is both a bit worse and a bit better than it might seem. You see, the French had promised us that we would be treated fairly and sent to Montreal. But as you may know, at times, a few Native Americans could be quite cruel 
and difficult to control in the heat of battle, so the French commander allowed them to select thirty prisoners to do with as they wished. Of fourteen hundred men, I was one of the lucky thirty to be so chosen. Quite naturally, I expected to be butchered, but some report, quite accurately as I recollect, that my ability to speak Welsh came in extraordinarily helpful. It was close enough to the language of my Native American captors that I was able to charm them, and their bloodlust, with regard to me at least, was satiated. The chief, who had taken a shine to me, asked that I be released, but the French determined to imprison me in France. I was not released until 1763. That was a long seven years of imprisonment. When the war ended, the crown granted me 5,000 acres as a reward for my services. I returned to my home colony, went back into business, and became a wealthy merchant. Still, when the British moved to impose the Stamp Act, I bolted into action against it and attended the Stamp Act Congress in 1765. When we boycotted our trade with the British, my personal business was ruined. No matter. Liberty is priceless. I was a vigorous opponent of British oppression and a leading light of the New York Sons of Liberty. I was a member of the New York Revolutionary Committees of 51 and 60, each of whom acted to ensure fidelity to the Patriot cause in New York. I was elected to the Second Continental Congress in 1775 and worked on a number of important committees, such as Maritime Affairs, Foreign Affairs, and the Board of Admiralty. When the Conway cabal raised its head, I helped behead the serpent. I applied my merchant skills thoughtfully and skillfully in a number of secret transactions that helped supply our military. Because we were not authorized to vote for independence, my entire New York delegation abstained from the vote for independence on July 2nd. However, I was pleased to sign the document on August 2nd. A few days later, I was at home on Long Island when a British warship started to fire its cannons on our home. My wife Elizabeth and our servants were there. Elizabeth had true guts of steel. A shell struck near her, and one of our dear servants told her to run. Elizabeth scoffed and remarked, Another shot is not likely to hit the same spot. When the shelling stopped, our house was invaded by British soldiers who began to ransack the house. My wife's shiny gold shoe buckles garnered the attention of one of those savages who tore them off her shoes. When the soldier realized that they were simply cosmetic and not truly gold, my dear Elizabeth beamed, all that glitters is not gold. In the end, my house was demolished. In a barbaric move, Elizabeth was dragged off and imprisoned in New York. Here she was, a 60-year-old lady, and for weeks they jailed her with no bed, no change of clothing, 
and only barely edible food. Thankfully, after several long weeks, one of our slaves was able to deliver some food, clothing, and letters. Still, she rotted in the prison for months. George Washington himself learned of her ill treatment and placed under house arrest two wives of prominent Philadelphia Tories so they could be exchanged. It worked. Elizabeth was released but had to stay in New York City. Unfortunately, our slave who helped her took ill. My wife nursed him, but he died despite her best efforts. It would not be too much longer, just 1779, when the Grim Reaper took Elizabeth too. The universal settlement is that her cruel imprisonment ruined her health and led to her early demise. Meanwhile, I remained in Congress through 1778. I continued to serve on the Board of Admiralty until 1781 and then retired. After all, the American Revolution was all but one. I let my mansion rot and moved in with my sons. I had been reduced to almost poverty. I finally was able to see my beloved Elizabeth on New Year's Eve, 1802. I was 89 years old. Of our children, three survived to adulthood. Our only daughter, in a slap in the face to me and departed wife, married, against my will, a British naval officer, and she left America to live with him in England. I lost my fortune, risked my life, and lost my wife and my daughter, and defended my sacred honor for America. For the cynics, I dare say you do the same. I look forward to meeting you at the pearly gates. Maintain your honor. I am yours, Francis Lewis. Some key takeaways from this episode. 56 delegates to Congress eventually signed the Declaration, beginning on August 2, 1776. Among those delegates were John Morton, George Clymer, James Smith, George Taylor, James Wilson, George Ross, Caesar Rodney, George Reed, Thomas McKean, William Floyd, Philip Livingston, and Francis Lewis. To fulfill the first principles of free and just government and achieve independence, the signers of the Declaration of Independence mutually pledged to each other and the new nation, their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. As we learned from this episode, some of those signers risked their lives in battle, lost their wives, and had their fortunes ravaged, but they maintained their sacred honor. And we are the heirs of that pledge. Live up to it. Please join us for our next general episode when we take a detour from the signers of the Declaration of Independence and review Thomas Jefferson's original draft of the Declaration and how it was changed by Congress. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two terrific Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skenechny, who is our sound designer and the host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett, proud father, I mean owner, of an amazing new recreational vehicle. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about our first principles, key documents and speeches, patriots, and flags. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you 
and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.